The Buddha awoke when he realized the nature of this body and mind, and when he understood the biological, the genetic, the karmic, the dharmic, the moral and psychological laws that he was heir to. We could say that he was a scientist of the human nature or the human condition. And in his teachings to the men and women of his day, which was an agrarian society, the teachings were filled with uh, images and metaphors and references to the elements of nature. And he encouraged his students, monks and nuns and followers, to seek out remote uh, forested places that were deep in the uh, jungle or forest, far away from the um, centers of uh, human interaction. Not because there was something wrong with human interaction, but that the investigation or the introspection uh, of the mind requires some seclusion. And so places of physical seclusion are conducive to the practice that leads to mental seclusion. Many of his most uh, profound uh, realizations are to be mirrored or can be seen to be mirrored in the uh, display of nature that we see around us here or anywhere where there's a preponderance of the natural world. As the teachings of the Buddha has come to the West, it has uh, initially appealed to those of us who have the means, uh, the education, uh, the discretionary time, and the karmic inclination to take up this actually very subtle teaching. And not only is it the taking up and resonating with the teaching, but it's uh, undertaking a initially a practice uh, of awakening which in with experience or with maturity ends up being more of a way of life than a, just a, a practice of some sort. So the knowledge of the Buddha's teachings is necessary for us who wish to uh, understand what the Buddha understood. How would we know if we have uh, plumbed the depths of reality if we don't listen or don't hear what the Buddha taught and compare our own or evaluate our own understanding uh, in light of that? So tonight I want to speak about the uh, Buddha's view of nature because his 
teachings uh, reveal a very refined understanding of all the laws of nature, which we too are heir to. Joseph Campbell, the noted mythologist of our time, said, the goal of life is to make your heartbeat match the beat of the universe, to match your nature with nature. The question for us is, is there really any difference between the Dhamma, the way things are, and nature, the way things are? The Bodhisattva, the one who was to become the Buddha, was born under a tree, it is said. As a young man, he attained exalted tranquility or jhana while sitting in the shade of a rose apple tree. When he undertook his uh, austere meditative practices, he resorted to remote places, often in the forest, sitting under a tree. And when he awoke to the truth, the depth of the truth that he did, becoming the Buddha, he was sitting under a tree. During the 35 years of his teaching, after his, uh, 45 years of his teaching, after his awakening, he often taught under a tree, and he extolled the virtues of practicing in the forest and encouraged his students to seek out the roots of trees. He said of himself, I resort to remote jungle thicket resting places in the forest as one of the noble ones possessed of wisdom. Seeing in myself this possession of wisdom, I found great solace in dwelling in the forest. It is because I see two benefits that I still resort to remote jungle thicket resting places in the forest. I see a pleasant abiding for myself here and now, and I have compassion for future generations. I've reflected on this comment of the Buddha that I resort to the forest for these two reasons. I see a pleasant abiding for myself here and now which, if you stop and think about it, that'd be pretty amazing to come to this forest here at Cloud Mountain if this place wasn't here, if the retreat center wasn't here, and to dwell in this forest and find it pleasant. That's an understanding I don't have yet. I understand and I value the, the forest and the uh, ability to be in the midst of nature and see myself merely as an element of nature. But I can't say that I'd find it pleasant. And so I think there's something yet to be learned. But more astounding than that first reason is his second. He resorted to the forest because he has compassion for future generations. 
we are the future generations of the Buddhist time. What does his going to the forest have to do with us? How is it that we benefit from the Buddha going to the forest? How is it a support for our life? How is it that out of compassion for our suffering, that his going to the forest relieves us in some way or supports our freedom from suffering? I don't have the answer. But it's worth thinking about. It's caused me a lot of wonderment in my life as to what that could mean. And I think maybe the, the real wonderment is, what can I do out of compassion for future generations, but see that there's a forest for them to resort to, too? In the Melinda Panha, which are the questions of King Melinda, it is said that the diligent disciple should be like a tree. And as a tree makes no distinction in the shade it gives, like this, the meditator should make no distinction between any being, but develop love equally to all, including oneself. And the Buddha said of a kindly, hospitable, compassionate person that he or she was like a great banyan tree growing on the side of the roads that welcomes weary travelers with its cool shade and soothes their tiredness. A kindly, hospitable person is like a cooling shade of a big tree. There are many images of uh, trees and stories of trees offering teachings throughout the history of the Buddha's teachings on earth. And there's a Zen koan that says, an ancient pine tree is proclaiming the Dhamma. But I might add a footnote here for those who can hear it. Ajahn Chah, one of the elders in our tradition of the Thai forest tradition, confirmed that when he said, with even a little intuitive wisdom, we will be able to see clearly through the ways of the world. We will come to understand that everything in the world is a teacher. Trees, for example, can reveal the nature of reality to us. With wisdom, we can learn enough from nature to become enlightened. But the question for us in hearing this, these teachings is how? How do we resort to this forest here? How do we understand the nature around us and within us so that we too can realize the depth of the liberating teachings that the Buddha did? We can get some suggestion of how to do that from uh, a story about Louis Agassiz. Louis Agassiz was a famous Swiss uh, scientist who uh, proclaimed quite revolutionarily at his time that one should study nature instead of books. 
in order to really learn something. And he made his name and fame by studying glaciers in Switzerland. Now, if you've ever seen a glacier, you'll know that they're not a very dynamic activity there. Nevertheless, he was able to observe glaciers and understand their life. So when he came to the United States on a speaking tour and spoke all around the country, he was wildly popular. And all kinds of Agassiz clubs formed throughout the country. Harvard University being who they are, hired him. And he was a very popular teacher with graduate students. And there was something of a competition to uh, be selected by him to be one of his students. It was written that when the initial interview was at an end, Agassiz often would ask the student when he or she would like to begin. And when the answer was now, the student was immediately presented with a dead fish, usually a very long dead, pickled, evil-smelling specimen personally selected by the master from one of the wide-mouthed jars that lined his shelves. The fish was placed before the student in a tin pan, and he or she was to look at the fish, the student was told, whereupon Agassiz would leave, not to return until later in the day, if at all. Samuel Scudder was one of those students, and he described the experience that he had as one of his life's most memorable turning points. He wrote, in 10 minutes, I'd seen all that could be seen in that fish. <laughs> Half an hour passed, an hour, another hour. The fish began to look loathsome. I turned it over and around. I looked it in the face, ghastly, from behind, beneath, above, sideways, at three-quarters view, just as ghastly. I was in despair. I wasn't able to use the magnifying glasses. Instruments of all kinds were prohibited my two hands, my two eyes, and the fish. It seemed a most limited field. I pushed my finger down its throat to feel how sharp the teeth were. I began to count the scales in the different rows until I was convinced that that was nonsense. At last, a happy thought struck me. I would draw the fish. And now, with surprise, I began to discover new features in the creature. When Agassiz returned later and listened to Scudder recount what he had observed, his only, his only comment was that the young man must look again. Scudder continues, I was piqued. I was mortified. Still more of that wretched fish. But now I set myself to my task with a will, and I discovered one new thing after another. The afternoon passed quickly, and when towards its close, the professor inquired, do you see it yet? No, I replied, I am certain I do not, but I see how little I saw before. The following day, having thought of the fish through most of the night, Scudder had a brainstorm. The fish, he announced to Agassiz, had symmetrical sides with paired organs. Of course, of course, Agassiz said, obviously pleased. Look, look, look was a repeated injunction and the best lesson he ever had, a legacy of inestimable value with which he could, which he could not buy and with which he could not part. <laughs>
we have this fish. It's right here. It is our mind and body that we are to look at. And to look at again. And I know you've been looking for two days. Have you seen it yet? This is the challenge for us. Can we look at this process that we are, all of it, and truly see it as it is? Without studying the books, can we see for ourselves with our own eyes, with our own mind? If the wisdom of liberation is to be gained from observing nature, what is to be seen in a tree? How are we to observe it? What are we to understand? I love coming here. Um, it's one of the, it is the first place I taught after uh, disrobing 20-some years ago. And when I come here and walk in this forest, it is uh, awe-inspiring. It takes over my mind. It changes how I feel. It has a way of elevating the spirit, humbling the chattering mind. It has a way of revealing to me how natural it is to be here. How safe I feel, actually, to be here. Even though there are dangers in the forest, as we know, we should be aware of that. But nevertheless, it is a, well, I think it helps me reflectively see parts of my own life that, well, I might not have seen before or might not have been paying attention to. Because in the forest, looking, observing, watching, walking through the forest, you see all of the truths of life on display. Being born, dying, decaying, competition for light and soil and water, it's all there. The multiplicity of the species, the interdependence of one upon the other, life forms living upon other life forms, and the inevitable dying. And that's just the superficial beginning of what we see here and what we know about ourselves. What is immediately seen, of course, are the laws of nature. We see the physical laws, how it's really interesting to see how the trees aim towards the sun, or even different plants, without there being anyone inside this plant, will turn their leaves towards the sun. We see how the seasons have their effect on the growth in the forest. We see all the animals that different times are abundant in the forest. We can see all of the uh, effects of climate, of weather, of the composition of the earth, the soil, the wind, sun.
that's what this forest is made out of. It is a display of the laws of nature. There isn't any one of us that could make that happen. It is too complex. It is too infinitely detailed. It is just way beyond our capacity. And yet, it happens. We see it. We can confirm it. We can also understand all of the biological laws. So we can begin to see or get a, in, in, into it the biological laws that govern the maturing of a forest. Maturing of the individual plants, maturing of the forest itself. We can understand the life cycle of individual trees, plants, forest. Again, the teachings on aging, disease, and death are apparent for those who look, for those who can see what is to be learned from just observing the forest. Now, many people, of course, have wandered in the forest and never seen any of this, haven't learned anything about themselves, have looked to the forest as a source of income, or just a bother, an impediment to where they wanted to be, what they wanted to do, and haven't really understood this about themselves or the forest. So for us, what is it that we need to abide in the forest to learn about ourselves? We need some teaching. We need some pointing out of what's going on here just as we need some pointing out, some direction as to what's going on within our own mind and our own body. And then we need to pay attention, like Samuel Scudder at the time of his interview with Louis Agassiz, learning how to observe. We all have two eyes. We all have a mind. But they're not trained. And part of A large part of our practice here is training the mind in how to observe, how to see what is there in front of us. I was reading um, an article now some, some years ago, and it was about this amazing discovery that was made in California uh, just, just recently, somewhere in the last couple decades that at the tops of the tallest redwood trees, there is another whole ecosystem different than that on the ground. At the tops of these trees that are two or 300 feet tall, the branches of one tree reach out and touch the other trees. And it creates a platform upon which forest debris has accumulated, some places three and four feet thick. Now that they've learned how to climb these trees without damaging them, there have been those who've climbed to this platform and have walked around on this outstretched arms of these trees, discovering plants growing there that don't grow on the forest floor. 
but when you just walk into the forest and cut down the tree and you drop it all you don't see that this this whole ecosystem was never known to be there until the last couple decades never known to be there and how many men women scientists and others had wandered through the forest and missed it It's not so different from us. There is a whole area of the mind, whole areas of the mind that are not apparent to us unless we know about them and look. There's whole ecosystems in the mind that are available for discovery if we look correctly with a sustained interest. And there the, uh, what would you call it, the optimization, I guess, of the mind. That development of the qualities of awakening can reveal to us. Whether it's the nature of insight or the exalted states of concentration or bliss or ecstasy or uh, penetrating insight or the effects of some of the apparently magical effects of the mind that seem well, just unbelievable to us. They are capacities of the mind which, well, are pretty dormant in our day and age. But they're there. They're available as a potential within each one of our own minds. Even to hear about them is rare. And to find someone who can teach you to access them is rarer still. And then to undertake the practice, few do that. And for those, the numbers who realize and, and discover for themselves this terrain of the mind, very few. It is still there in each one of us as a potential. What we see is the refined nature of a human being, or the mind. Again, discovered through direct observation. One area that is discovered early on, and that we all have some taste of, is the natural law of cause and effect, karma. There are people still arguing whether karma's a necessary belief or not. I would merely like to invite them to observe their own mind uh, for a bit to see how the law of karma can be confirmed. The law of karma essentially states actions and speaking that are conditioned by or influenced by unwholesome states of mind are going to be experienced as unpleasant. The result is going to be unpleasantness in the mind and body. And those actions and those spoken words that are influenced or conditioned by wholesome state of mind are going to be experienced as pleasant. That's really not magical. That's really not so impossible to confirm for yourself either. 
if you look into your own mind and you see where's this where's the intention to speak and act in this way coming from now that's hard to discover your own motivation for speaking and acting but with care precision continuous observation we can we can see, we can begin to really honestly acknowledge where, what the motivation is when we speak, when we act. And then we can see whether we have acted with wholesome integrity or contaminated uh, intention. There's also the, what is called the citta niyama, the natural law of the unfolding of the mind. There's these activities of mind, <coughs> feeling. Today I was talking about pointing to feeling This is a, a capacity of the mind to feel physical and mental phenomena. This is not accidental. It's not just for some of us. It's not like uh, I have one way, you have another way. This is a natural activity of the mind. We can't stop the mind from feeling. It is a law of the mind, if you understand it that way to behave like this. And we are heir to that law. We didn't invite it, we didn't create it, we can't get rid of it. It's something that if we observe and study, learn, understand, we can learn to live in harmony with. So often we don't. So often we ignore the lessons Is there life? 
to recognize familiar phenomena. First time you see something, first time you experience something, you taste something, the mind takes note of the distinctiveness of that experience. And thereafter, every time the mind feels that phenomena again, This is something that happens automatically. We don't do this. We can't stop the mind from doing it. It happens. This is the natural law governing the unfolding of the mind. We can discover that. We might say that the law is an articulation of what has been observed by those who have studied, those who really looked long and hard well, falling apples, in Newton's case, able to articulate the law of gravity. Because he observed it. Not only observed it, a lot of people have seen apples fall, but he understood what it was he was seeing. And just like we, too, we see the sun rise in the east, set in the west. And from our direct perception, it looks like, well, the sun is circling the earth. sun does not revolve around the earth, right? There isn't any of us, right, that believes the sun goes like this around the earth. Why? Because we've been told by those who know consistently, consistently, and tested on it, actually, 
now we believe it. If we did the same with the teachings of the Buddha and looked for ourselves, we too would understand the laws of nature governing the unfolding of life. So there's the moral laws, the law of karma, there's the psychological laws that govern the unfolding of the uh, mind, and then there are the dharma laws, the, the laws of dharma, which also uh, you might call them the natural spiritual laws of the mind. That there is this mind and body, they have this relationship, there is cause and effect giving rise to all that we see. There are the three universal characteristics of all phenomena. Everything that arises passes away. There's nothing so stable that it can offer us enduring security and happiness. And this is all out of our control. We didn't make this up. None of us would choose that as a way to live or the conditions of our life. This is the way it is. This is the natural, spiritual law of the universe. When we hear about it, if we devote extraordinary care and attention continuously to our own experience, we'll confirm it. But it's not easy. And we'll still live our life as if it wasn't true even though we know at some level all things are impermanent. Everything that arises passes away. We still construct our relationships, our retirement accounts, our governments, our homes, everything as if it was going to be permanent. And we're even surprised when it isn't. What is it going to take for us to really grok it, to really live the truth that we know? It's not easy. But this is what we're attempting to do here in our practice, is to see that this package of this mind and body is a walking, talking, dynamic display of the laws of nature. That's what this is a display of all the laws of nature that we have discovered. And to the extent that we can live in alignment with and become a scientist of this mind-body process and live in alignment with the truth of what we see, the Buddha saw that this leads to the end of suffering. take you through a little journey through the through the forest and what's involved in uh, seeing a tree so there's uh, 45 of us here in the room when we look outside and we stand in front of a tree do we all see the same thing 
Well, the functioning of the eyes is the same in this body as it is in that body. And so there is the perception, or there's the taking in of a form and a color, a shape and a color. And that mere seeing without any name, without any meaning, without any valuing, goes into the mind. And all it takes is a momentary glance. Just take a glance, you can close your eyes, and the mind does the rest. The mind massages that visual data into something that we understand, that we give a value, that we have a whole story about. But each one of us, and this is the uh, knowing capacity of the mind, to see through the eyes this form and this color. This is vijnana. It only sees form and color. It does not make it a tree. It doesn't know that it's a tree. It doesn't have any value to it. It just sees form and color. It's only when this data gets into the mind that the activity of perception starts massaging this data and running it through the uh, kind of the Rolodex of known events to determine, oh, this is a tree. It has the shape of a tree, the color of a tree, the size of a tree, and a location like all trees. Oh, this is a tree. But then, depending on our conditioning, how we've spent our life, where we've spent our life, what we've been taught to value, we see something different. A forester might look at this tree, or any of these trees out here, and say, Oh, this is a mature tree, uh, it's disease-free, or it's, uh, maybe it's got some disease, but uh, you know, it's part of the ecosystem and it's only possible to stay upright like that because these other trees around it, it's not exposed to the wind, and it's, it's, it has its place in this, mature for, this maturing forest. The environmentalists among you come into this forest and you see, wow, cool on the way to being an old growth forest. Right, okay, these trees, can't cut them down, ever. The property owner may realize that, oh yes, these trees are valuable, but this one over here happens to be in the way of my view from my house, if you will, and has a, another understanding about that tree. The developer who the land could have been sold to, actually the land just down below the parking lot, you know, that the Cloud Mountain uh, just bought uh, a couple years ago, was going to be stripped of all of its trees and sold. But luckily the, the neighbor who owned it came here and, and asked us if we'd like to buy it. Of course, we did, because we didn't want that, we didn't want that forest sold and cut. So we bought that forest. But to him, the property owner, it was money. It was the money he needed to do what he needed to do. The person who, oh, if you walk down the driveway and take a right, you know, as they walk, just walk down the hill, there's all these old trees that just were cut a couple years ago. You can see the stumps, they're like three, four, maybe five feet across. You know, they're only 50, 60, 70 years old, but nevertheless, they were cut. Uh, and how do you think the saw miller saw those trees? 
wow, there's so many board feet. I can, I can get so much lumber out of this, and out of these 20 trees, I can uh, get so many uh, board feet, enough to build a house or more. The artist among you might have looked at some of those trees or any of these trees and seen a form and a shape and a texture and a grain, a color that would be ideal for your next creation. Of course, the birds, the bees, the bugs, the worms, it's home. Each of us has our own understanding of what it is we're seeing. It is mindfulness. It is awareness that stops that process so that we can see all of the options in our mind. We can remember, take the time to observe this tree and see it as it truly is, and to watch our own mind spin out all the various possibilities of what it is we're looking at. And then it's wisdom that understands the value of this tree. It's wisdom that either puts a monetary value on it, or values its place in the ecosystem, or values its timber as a building product. It's wisdom of one sort or another. A few years ago, now it's probably 10 years ago, I was leading a retreat here, just like this retreat. We came in Friday night, had our opening. All day Saturday we practiced. All day Sunday we practiced. Monday morning, 6 o'clock, on the land just in back of the hall, just beyond that little wire line, the machinery showed up to clear cut that land. And they were going to be operating from 6 in the morning mm -hmm. till 4 o'clock every afternoon for two weeks. And they're loud. They didn't bother to use chainsaws to cut those trees down. They just used big machines on, tra on legs, tractors, that drive up to the tree, grab it at the top, pinch it off at the bottom, flip it over, feed it into a chipper, and within a few minutes, a tall standing tr forest tree is chips to be sent to Japan. And that's what they did for the 10 days of our retreat, or eight, five of the eight days of our retreat. Now, <clears throat> you can imagine what happened to those yogis who came for their annual retreat secluded in the forest when this happened. The one who was sitting right there where Evan is sitting was a land use lawyer. Spent the whole first day drafting a cease and desist order <laughs> that we had to talk him out of going to get <laughs> at the local court. And somewhere back in the hall was a young woman who'd just gotten out of jail for having chained herself to an old growth forest tree <laughs> to keep it from being cut down. Every time you walk out of the hall to go during a walking period, you could see, and all day long you could hear what was happening there. 
no one left the retreat early. In fact, most of the people on that retreat said it was the best retreat they ever had. Why? Well, this is the way it is. This is the way it is. And even though there was tremendous reactivity among all of us, I think, you know, anger and frustration and disappointment and rage and disbelief and sorrow, sadness for the trees, and all the animals came over here. There were a lot. And, and yet, this is life. This, this is what happens. You know, whether it's a forest or a family or, you know, a tsunami that comes through your life in one form or another, this is the way it is. There is no security. There is no stability. All things change. And if we are willing to open to that truth, even the cutting of a forest down like that is, well, it's, it's an occasion for a lot of reaction and a lot of understanding and a lot of opening and actually coming to terms with our own mind, our own beliefs, our own misbeliefs. And this is what we see when we uh, study nature. We live in illusion and the appearance of things Rinpoche says, there is a reality, we are that reality. When you understand this, you see that you are nothing. And being nothing, you are everything. That is all. What is this everything and nothing that we are? Everything in this world is reflected in this body-mind. The Buddha said, the entire universe is to be found in this body. You don't need to go anywhere. <coughs> you can find it all here. And yet, when we look deeply into the nature of this body and this mind, what do we see? While it may initially appear as a tapestry, a colorful uh, tapestry of our life, this tapestry is made up of just infinite number of threads, just pixels of phenomena which have no personality at all. Just like a tapestry hanging on the wall of a museum or an art gallery. From a distance it looks like there's a full and colorful narrative on display. And as you get closer you lose the fullness of it and as you get really close and you look at the texture of that tapestry you see, it's just pieces of thread, little filaments, insignificant, almost nothing. And when we look at our life from a distance, it's a colorful display. It's a colorful image of who we are, who we've been, where we're going, how we see ourselves, how others see ourselves, our joys, our sorrows, our accomplishments, our failures, our strengths, our limitations. It's all on display right here. 
And yet, when we sit down and we take a close look, what is it that we see, really? It's just a pixel of sensation here, another pixel of sensation there, a pixel of a thought, an image, a color, a feeling, a memory, a plan, a thought, a strategy. Nothing very substantial. This is a profound realization that everything we see here is nothing. Nothing substantial, nothing enduring. And yet we're all different, colorfully different, made of the same stuff. Ajahn Chah again said, people have asked about my practice. How do I prepare my mind for meditation? There is nothing special. I just keep it where it always is. They ask, then, are you fully enlightened, Arhant? He says, do I know? I'm like a tree in a forest, full of leaves, blossoms, and fruit. Birds come to eat and nest, and animals seek rest in my shade. Yet the tree does not know itself. It follows its own nature. It is as it is. And in ending, I just want to share the Buddha's exhortation to us. There are these trees and the roots of trees. Meditate. Do not be negligent, lest you regret it later. So let's sit for a moment and let the words quiet down. <coughs> 